would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2. As together we look at 13 through 46. This is a large section of scripture, but it deals with a unified theme. And we remember that at this point in 1 Kings, David has gone the way of all flesh. He has died, but he gave his son Solomon a charge before he died. Some of the important features of that charge were, first of all, he told him it was uh, gravely important that he follow the will of the Lord, that he not follow his own will, that he do, does what is recorded in Scripture, and that he also be strong and of good courage. A weak leader, an indecisive leader, is a blight to a nation. A leader who does not follow the Lord is an even greater blight. The worst kind of leader would be a weak and indecisive man who knows not the Lord nor his will. But uh, this is not the kind of king that Solomon is going to be. And we'll see how he decisively establishes his rule within the kingdom and follows the advice of his father. But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's go to God himself and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Oh, sovereign Lord, I do pray now, Lord, that you would be with us and that you would be the light of our minds, that you would help us to understand your word. We do confess that no man, not knowing your power, will ever be able to exposit the word aright. So I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help me to understand it and to divide it. I pray that I would say nothing that goes against your word, but that everything that I say would be edifying to your people. Help me now to open up the whole council, to hold nothing back. Lord, I do remember your admonition that not many of us should be teachers, uh, for we will receive a stricter judgment. Help me then, therefore, to speak your word and only your word to your people. And give us attentive ears, Lord. It is, oh, so often the case that when the word is being preached, everything that is of no importance, no consequence, floods into our mind to distract us. We know that the world, the flesh, and the devil do not want us to hear you. But I pray, O oh Lord, that you would hedge us in and that you would help us in these moments. Help us to hear your voice and then to live by it. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 2 and reading verses 13 through 46. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. Then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has turned, I've been turned over and has become the, my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. And he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to you, uh, speak for you rather to the king. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, his wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, 
Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. For him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. And to Abiathar, the priest, of the, king, uh, the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar the, from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And the king and King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. Then the king said to him, Do as he has said, and strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, Though my father David did not know it, their blood therefore shall return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada in his place over the army, and the king put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. Then the king sent and called for Shimei, and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron. Know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years, the two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, uh, sorry, Achish, the son of Maaka, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei rose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shimei, You know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. 
But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. G.K. Chesterton famously said that he, he was amazed that men did not believe in the doctrine of original sin. When he said it's the only one of those doctrines in the Bible, the only theological doctrine that can be established empirically, you can see it lived out around you. And not, not uh, by observing grown men, you can see it even in the lives of children. If you have ever taken something away from a toddler because it was dangerous or he might break it or so on, and then seen the rage that comes into his heart, his little fists gripping at that point and his eyes looking at you, you know, with that, with that oh, that my body were stronger than I might be able to crush you now and do my will, that, that rage that comes into their heart. Because we're born with that my will be done syndrome. I'm reminded uh, as I say that of, uh, of an incident we had gone to visit uh, relatives, and uh, Margaret was playing with her uh, nephew, who was an only child, and he, uh, he wasn't used to, obviously, his, his toys being played with by people, especially interlopers and girl interlopers. And so she was playing with them, and he was trying desperately to take them all away from her as she was trying to play with them. And uh, finally, he gave up, and he picked up a wiffle ball bat. He began hitting her as hard as he could, which wasn't very hard, thankfully. Uh, and his mother, you know, scooped him up and, and she said, now, you don't mean to hurt Margaret, do you? And he looked at her and he was just shaking with rage. And he said, I want to kill. His, his entire body was, was just filled with this, my will be done, that was going on within him. And he had determined that nobody would his will. That's the problem that we all have, isn't it? That we are a people who want our will to be done. That's all of our problem, not just toddlers. From the very word go, after the creation, it's been something that's afflicted us. In fact, we remember that the problem of wanting our will to be done isn't singular to humans. It happened to the devil as well. He too wanted his will to be done. He wanted to be in charge. And so he rebelled against God and he fell. And then he tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve. What did he tell them? He told them that if they disobeyed God and did their own will, they would be as gods themselves, doing their own will and having power themselves. That's been our great desire, to assert our own sovereignty and to say, not thy will be done, but my will be done when it comes to God. We all want to be uh, a nation, in fact, a globe of billions of little gods, all asserting our own sovereignty in the world. This is nothing new. David wrote about it in Psalm 2. I'd invite you to turn with me so we can take a look at that. Psalm 2. And I want you to notice as we're reading this how not only we see rebellion against God, but against God's government. We see rebellion against God's sovereignty. They don't want God. They don't want his laws. They don't want any of the restrictions that he places on them. And they don't want the ones whom he has put in power. And that not only applies, obviously, to, uh, to individual kings, as in the age of the theocracy that we're reading about in 1 Kings, 
but it applies most especially, of course, to the Lord's especial anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. But together, let's read Psalm 2, where we read, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. We see there that the kings of the earth, they've been rebelling against God, the, the rulers and authorities, mankind, ruling against uh, or attempting to overthrow his rule and assert their own. But the Lord laughs at that. And the Lord warns that if we will not submit to his rule, it will not go well for us. We will either receive mercy if we kiss the sun and we bow before him, or we will receive judgment. We will be broken with the rod of his wrath. And so it's very important, obviously, not just in the Bible, but throughout our lives, that we accept the Lord's instructions, we accept his decrees, and we follow the one whom he has appointed, his anointed one. Uh, unfortunately, even within Israel, even within the covenant community, there had been that disobedience, that tendency to say, my will and not God's will be done, and the attempt to thwart God's will, even though it's vain. King Saul, you remember, had been like that. Again and again, he had violated God's instructions. He had not waited for the Lord uh, to bring Samuel the prophet to make uh, a sacrifice. He had not trusted in the sovereignty of God. And he had violated God's law by, by doing the sacrifice himself. This was not something that kings were allowed to do, and yet he had done it. And then the Lord had said, go and cut off Amalek completely. You'll be my hand of judgment. But they had not cut off Amalek entirely. They had left the choicest of the animals alive. They'd left King Agag alive. And again, the Lord rebuked him and said, now the kingdom is being taken away from you because you're not a man after my heart. You don't love me and you do not obey my commandments. But he had also refused to accept the God's will about, uh, about his successor. He had not accepted what God had said to him. He was determined that not only would he remain on the throne, but that his son would succeed him, even if that meant killing David, the Lord's anointed, the one whom God had picked to supplant him. Even Saul's own son, Jonathan, accepted that David would be the next king. He told David, you remember, you shall be king over Israel in 1 Samuel 23. And yet he, that is Saul, had gone to his death trying all the while vainly to thwart the Lord's will in this matter. I will have my will done. David's son Absalom had been like that as well. He had not been willing to wait on the Lord to receive an inheritance. And instead he thought to himself, I'm handsome, I'm young, I'm strong. Why should I have to wait for my father to die? And he rebelled against David, but his rebellion had come to nothing because the Lord had decreed that he would not be king. So even though it seemed like a shoo-in that he would win, yet he was thwarted in his ambitions. And now we, we have another one of David's sons 
who wanted to be king, even though he had not been appointed by God to be king, and that was Adonijah. He was another my will be done man. Now, he, we know from the previous chapter that he had already attempted to, uh, to become king via a coup. He had attempted to uh, rally the leaders in the church and in the army uh, to him so that he might be the king following David. And he thought to himself, I'm, I'm the oldest. Why shouldn't I? I'm handsome. I'm young. I, I should be allowed to take over as well. But it had already been decreed that he would not be king. You remember Nathan had told David, conveying those words about how there would always be a king to sit upon his throne. Of course, that's pointing forward to Jesus Christ. But he had told them that one would come from his body, one who was not yet alive. Well, Adonijah was alive at that point, but Solomon had not yet been born. Nathan was speaking of the fact that Solomon would succeed David on the throne. And that had clearly excluded Adonijah from it. Additionally, it seemed well known throughout the kingdom that David had promised that Solomon would succeed him. He had made that promise to Bathsheba. Nathan knew about it. The entire nation probably knew about it. And that's why Adonijah had acted so quickly. Uh, he had not expected his old father to be able to thwart his will there. He had tried to seize the throne. He had gathered powerful men to his side, Joab and Abiathar in particular, the head of the army, the highest priest. And he had attempted to pull this coup off. And it hadn't worked. Now, Solomon, after the coup, had graciously allowed him to live. I, I need to emphasize that. That's not a common occurrence in the ancient world. As a general rule, it was often the case that when a uh, man came to power, when he succeeded his father or another relative, he would kill all of the other potential successors to the throne. For instance, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, I did my... my um, uh, my MA thesis on, on the sick man of Europe and the Ottoman Empire, it was common that when uh, a new sultan came to the uh, throne, all of his brothers were strangled with a bowstring. Uh, it, was, it was just the way it happened. Solomon did not do it. He showed him mercy instead of justice. He watched him to see what would happen. God had made it clear to Adonijah, or should have made it clear, that he would not reign. In fact, Adonijah, you remember when he goes and he talks to Bathsheba, he said, well, this is, this is God's will that I, I not reign. But did he really accept that in his heart? We don't know, but it seems like he was still maneuvering. Now, keep in mind that, that Solomon had many other brothers who were not contesting with him for the throne, who had simply openly accepted, yes, Solomon will be the next head of the United Kingdom. But Adonijah wants more, and he wants the unfortunately named Abishag. He, uh, he desires her. Now, we don't know whether it was her looks that appealed to him. Uh, she was, after all, the winner of the All-Judah beauty contest that had been uh, held to find a new concubine for David, or uh, her former status as David's concubine. Uh, that would establish uh, whoever married her as having a very strong claim to the throne, establishing continuity between the, uh, the old order and the new one. But regardless, Adonijah had to have known that going and asking for her hand in marriage was a very dangerous move. In fact, it is so dangerous, he doesn't go to Solomon directly. He attempts to wheedle his way into this marriage. He goes to his mother, uh, that is Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. And note the language that he used when he speaks to her. He says, you know that the kingdom was mine. And all Israel had set their expectations on me. 
You know how it was that everybody in Israel secretly wanted me to be king. It was my turn. But, uh, you know, that's not the way the Lord uh, determined it would happen. It was turned over and has become my brothers. This is not an open acceptance of everything that has happened, though. Even if he's acknowledging with his words that it was the Lord's will, he doesn't seem to have that in his heart. And that seems to be the problem, as we shall see with not only Adonijah, but all of his supporters. And indeed, so many of the people uh, we read about in the Bible who were born within the covenant community. Although they're able to say, thy will be done to the Lord, it's not a wholehearted acceptance of that. It's always a, thy will be done as long as it's my will. <laughs> it's thy will. In other words, if you're doing, Lord, what I like and what goes in keeping with what I think is right, then certainly your will be done. But in fact, what are we really doing? We're simply asserting that our will should be what the Lord is doing. It was all mine, he tells her. Everyone in Israel wanted me to be king. Now I just have one small request. I haven't gotten that, so I just want Abishag for wife. Now, at that point, Bathsheba, and I can't believe that Bathsheba was, was, such, was so naive, let's, let's be generous, that she didn't understand what was going on, but she does go and make the request. Was she really that naive not to understand that this put Adonijah in a very strong position? and would have undermined her son's kingship. I don't know, but we know that Solomon was not naive at all. <laughs> His answer to her is, oh sure, I'll, I'll marry uh, Adonijah off to my father's last concubine and establish them as Jerusalem's premier power couple. That, that sounds like a good idea, mom, well done. He says, no, that's not, that's not gonna be the, the case. You might as well, if I'm gonna do that, ask, ask for the kingdom for him as well because this will strengthen his hand and weaken me greatly. His sense is clearly that this is a continuation of the former coup. And he swears Adonijah will die. And he sends Beniah out to execute him. And Beniah goes and he executes him for conspiring against the king. But now there is the problem of the co-conspirators. What's going to happen with Joab and Abiathar? First he deals with Abiathar. Now he will not kill Abiathar. And this is because Abiathar was the high priest, because he carried the ark of the Lord, because also of his faithfulness to his father. During Absalom's rebellion, uh, Abiathar had gone with his dad into the wilderness, and he is not willing to do that. Also, Abiathar is, is very old at this point. He was probably around 80 years old when this happened. So he determines, no, I will, I'll exile him. So he sends him to his hometown in Anathoth, which was a priest city. It was a place that a lot of Levites lived. It's the place that Jeremiah is going to be born many hundreds of years from now. But uh, he says, go back and live out your life here. But the author of inspired scripture notes that this is actually fulfillment of a promise, a judgment, a curse that was made on the family of Abiathar many, many, many years prior during the age of the judges. The house of Eli was cursed because of their disobedience to God. He had not, Eli had not carried out the will of the Lord. And so the Lord had determined that the priesthood would be taken away from his branch of Levi and given to another branch. In this case, it would be given to Zadok and his family. And the Lord's will, therefore, even though this curse was made hundreds of years before, is now being done. Or not hundreds of years before, what am I saying? It's, uh, it was many, many years before. But uh, we see here another proof of the fact that the Lord's will is always carried out. 
If the Lord says it's going to happen, even though it seems impossible, it's going to happen, and therefore we should trust in it. And remember this, uh, men are, are convinced that somehow they have veto power over God, that our will will be done, and that if we stand in the way of God, he can't get it done. There was this ridiculous uh, tweet that was sent out by Kenneth Copeland, incidentally, do not listen to anything that Kenneth Copeland says or anybody associated with him. In fact, anybody in the Word of Faith movement should be avoided like the plague that they are. But he actually tweeted out, God can't get it done if you won't let him. Okay, he created the universe in the space of six days. He's sovereign over all things. There isn't an entire atom in the universe that doesn't say created by God, made by him, ruled by him. But if we say no to God, it can't happen. That literally is the ridiculous theology that this man is promulgating. The word says differently, thankfully. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19.21, there was never any possibility that the curse that was laid upon Eli for his disobedience and the disobedience of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would not be carried out. And in the fullness of time, it was. So Abiathar is removed from the priesthood and his family line is cut off from being high priest from that point onwards. Now, Joab hears about what's happened to Adonijah, and he flees. He knows he's in trouble. He, he probably knows he'll be next, and it's very possible he had known that Adonijah was going to make the request. So he was aware that, that Solomon would figure out that the plotting had continued. So what does Joab do? Well, he flees to the altar. Now, keep in mind, the temple has not been built yet. It is the tent, the tabernacle of meeting is, however, permanently in Jerusalem. So he flees to the altar and he takes hold of the horns. What's he doing there? Well, how many of you are familiar with the hunchback of Notre Dame? Anybody? Okay. It's not as well known as it used to be. Um, I'm not going to recommend the Disney movie. The book's not that long, though, but it's interesting. In any event, the, uh, one of the, the, the main parts of that, uh, of that tale is the idea that a criminal who fled into the church might seek sanctuary uh, in the old Quasimodo version of the, uh, the movie, which I think is much more entertaining than, uh, uh, than the Disney version. Uh, everything's more entertaining than the Disney version, except for Old Yeller, but I'm getting off track here. The, uh, in any event... Uh, the idea being that if you fled into the sanctuary of the Lord, you would obtain at least sanctuary from your pursuers until your case could be judged. And the Lord had determined in Exodus that somebody who had been accused of manslaughter and yet had not actually killed that person and had not murdered them, that it was an accidental death, that they might uh, go, to the, go into the, the, the sanctuary of God, take hold of the altar, and then at least wait until their case was judged fairly. But here's the problem. Joab is a murderer. Joab is not a manslaughterer. He's not somebody who killed people accidentally. Uh, whenever David attempted to remove Joab from being head of the army, because he knew that Joab was a conniving man, a man whose will was going to be done, whenever David tried to remove him and replace him, he removed his successor. We can imagine this. It's, it's like there's never a change of command ceremony because whenever you, you get started with it, you turn around and the successor's dead. And there's Joab saying, ah, let's just continue as we have been, shall we? He was always putting to death the men who were to replace him. He had murdered Abna. He had murdered Amasa. 
And he'd done so in cold blood. He had he tricked them and assassinated both of them. So this man was a man who was covered in blood himself and who had become dangerous. He is now plotting against Solomon and his uh, willingness to go against what God has said is something that could not stand. And had he not been struck down, then the guilt, uh, the injustice would have been something that redounded to Solomon and to David's family. So therefore it must be done. So he sends Benaiah to strike him down. Benaiah does not want to kill somebody who's holding on to the horns of the altar. He does not want to desacralize, if I can use that term, the, the sacred space of the temple. He has that much respect for it. So it goes back to David and says, what should I do? He's holding on to the horns of the altar. He won't come out. He's not going to leave. And so Solomon rightly judges, well, he's already desacralized it by his very presence there, gripping the horns of the altar, strike him down. That's the righteous thing to do. Bring God's judgment down upon him in that very place. Just as uh, before, uh, priests who had defiled the, uh, the sanctuary, the, uh, the sons even of Aaron had been struck down by the Lord in that very place. So too Joab is struck down. And although he is put to death, he's executed, he's still buried, note this, with honor in his own house, which was a mark of respect given the station that he had. And uh, now Solomon can put Benaiah safely in place of Joab as the head of the army, the head of his military. But then lastly, we have this problem of Shimei. Uh, he is a prominent Benjaminite. Uh, he was a member of that particular tribe. And we remember that Saul had come from the house of Benjamin. And there must have been people within the house of Benjamin who were still hoping against hope that somehow they could return the kingship to their particular tribe. So uh, Solomon is no fool. He says, move to Jerusalem. Come to my city. Come into the, the most prominent city in all of Judah and stay there. Do not cross the brook Kidron. That was the border between Judah and Benjamin. He cannot go back and he can't plot against Solomon. And he agrees to the plan and he enters into an oath. He buys a house in Jerusalem and he dwells there. There was everything in Jerusalem that he would need. He could go to the market whenever he needed to. He could have lived out his life there. But unfortunately, gradually as time passes, he begins to forget his oath. He begins to forget the house imprisonment that he was under. And one thing happens uh, and uh, his slaves run away to Gath. They flee to Philistia, uh, Philistia and specifically to King Maaka. Now, most of the kingdoms of this period had treaties that runaway slaves would be returned. So if uh, a, a slave from Judah had fled to Philistia, the Philistines would not stand in the way of them being returned and so on. As long as there was not a state of open war between them, then they would be returned. So he goes back after his slaves to bring them back to Jerusalem. And then, of course, what happens? Solomon's spies come and tell him, this man whom you forbade from going across the brook, he has broken his word. Now, there's some, a reminder here for us. If we make an oath, and this happens so very often, people will swear an oath, but then as the oath becomes more and more distant, their willingness to hold on to it becomes more and more and more loose. Unfortunately, uh, this happens with oaths as sacred as the marriage vows that we take. I mean, I have actually in, I'm remembering back to one particular incident, I have actually been counseling somebody and I've reminded them, what about the oath? What about the vows that you took 
before God and many witnesses while you were standing before the, uh, the officiant when you were married. Didn't you not, did you not vow to forswear all others? Did you not pledge your troth at that point in time? And the person answered me and said, well, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Uh, you know, um, so was the Constitution, as I remember. Uh, and this man had also sworn an oath to uphold that. Is it that, you know, as time goes by, our, our oaths should diminish? Well, the answer is no. It didn't matter that three years had gone by. The oath had still been made, and he had been told, if you break this, you will be put to death. And so, uh, unfortunately, because he had deemed it no longer pressing, and he had deemed that his will would be done, Shimei is put to death. Now, what do all of these men have in common? Well, all of them determined in one way or another that their will would be done, not God's will, and not the will of the one that he had appointed to be the leader. All of them craved something. All of them had an idol that they, they lusted for more than to obey the Lord, more than to be part of his covenant community. Uh, they, they craved forbidden power. They, they craved wealth. Uh, they craved perhaps sex. But what they didn't crave was the good of the kingdom and the good of the Lord's anointed, the one whom God had put in place at the top of the kingdom. So it's another example simply of that, that fallen tendency that goes all the way back to the garden of my will be done being played out. Now, in doing this, though, men do this thinking, this is my will being done. But unfortunately, what the Word of God tells us is that when we do this, we're walking in keeping with our fallen nature. And whose will are we doing? We're doing the will of the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air, kids? Satan. Yeah, the devil. Um, looking at Ephesians chapter 2 and then starting with verse 1, we read this. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also, uh, whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We think we're doing our own will, but in fact what we are doing is simply we're following the will of the devil. We're following after his example in this. And brothers and sisters, I hope you learn from this, that whenever we put anything in the way of our covenant obedience to Christ, we are, in fact, doing the will of the devil. Whenever we say something is more important than doing the will of the Lord, whenever we say, my will be done, and that's what we do when we sin. The Lord has set forth his will, his statutes, his commandments, and when we say, no, I'm not going to follow that, we're saying, my will must be done in this matter. And we set the will of God aside. Uh, if you'll take a look at your worship folder and read there the Sabbath meditation from Phil Reich, and he's right when he says this, understand that we, when we insist on getting our own satisfaction, however we get it, we are saying no to the kingdom of God. We are saying that the mercy of Jesus is not enough for us. We still want to be the king or the queen, as the case may be. What is the one thing, he asks, that is keeping you from giving everything for the kingdom of God? And I would ask you to ask yourself that. What is it that your heart delights in that the Lord has not given to you, that the Lord has said is not right, 
but that you will not give up. What is the my will be done in your life? I know we all have one. Now, I could say, if I were a moralist, that the answer to all of your problems is simply to switch from my will be done to thy will be done and continue on that way. But the problem is, none of us will ever get that perfectly right. There's just too many times that we have already said my will be done and done whatever we wanted to regardless of what the Lord's commandment was. Too many times when we were the Adonijah or the Absalom or the King Saul. Too many times that we have rebelled against God. The death sentence, believe it or not, and I I know that our our brothers already referred to this. This is not the, the kind of preaching that is popular. The kind of preaching that's popular is the nonsense that you heard from Kenneth Copeland. God can't get it done if you don't let... That kind of ridiculousness. You're the king of the universe. That's the preaching that's popular. Why? Because it appeals to our fallen hearts. Our natural tendency is to want to be God. But what does the word say? The word has said you have already betrayed God. You have already said no to him. You've already said my will be done. Time and time again. And what is the just penalty for that kind of rebellion. What R.C. Sproul called so aptly, I will always remember this phrase. I I hope even in late stage Alzheimer's, I always remember cosmic treason, as he used to put it. That's what it is. When we rebel against God, we are committing cosmic treason. We are saying, my will be done. We can come up with all sorts of excuses for why we're doing it. I saw... uh, a meme yesterday. Um, those of you who are old and like me will remember Scooby-Doo. Hands up if you remember Scooby-Doo. Just to, thank heavens I'm not, I'm not completely old. And, um, if I'd said the little rascals, I'm guessing a few fewer hands. Okay, we've still got some little rascals guys there. Anyway, but uh, in Scooby-Doo, it was always they were pretending to be something else, and then they would have the reveal at the end. The kids would uh, would pull off the mask, and there you would see it was. Old Mr. Cooper, who was trying to get the fairgrounds for himself at a lower cost and pretending to be, pretending to be a, an evil spirit or something like that. And so this meme was a fellow saying, I don't believe in God anymore with the mask on. And he says, let's see who this really is. And he pulls the mask off. And it says, I just moved in with my girlfriend. What does the meme mean? The meme is simply this, that we find all sorts of reasons to disobey God time and again. We find reasons why we should have our will done. The Lord says, and if people are not clear on this, I'll I'll just reemphasize, that we shouldn't fornicate. We shouldn't be moving in with our girlfriend before we get married. But if the cost of moving in with my girlfriend is disobeying God, then so be it. I'll disobey God. What are we doing there? We're we're saying, my will be done. But it happens again and again. It has happened in in many lives. Many of you have already disobeyed the Lord time and again. What hope do we have? Well, there is hope yet. And our hope is to kiss the sun. Remember from Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed, the one he placed on his holy hill. What do we need to do? We need to bow the knee before Christ. We need to go to him seeking mercy. We remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one, and I mean this truly, who has ever done the Lord's will perfectly. We read, or we read rather, in Luke chapter 22 and starting with verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. What was the father's will at that moment? The father's will was that his son, Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who was ever born, who ever lived, would go to the cross bearing our sins, bearing the punishment for all the times that we and our ancestors have said, my will be done instead of God's will. And what did he say? Thy will be done. Was there any other way for us to be saved? You'll hear all sorts of people these days saying, well, there's got to be many paths to God. There's the old ridiculous uh, liberal, um, uh, liberal theological idea of there are many paths. There's God in the center and many different ways. Uh, it's like the spokes of a wheel. If I can follow Buddhism or Islam or even Marxism, I'll eventually somehow get to God at the center of the wheel. We know that isn't true because we've been separated from God by our sins, by our my will be done's. And so therefore, we need atonement. We need our sins to be paid for. We need the blood of the lamb to cover us. And we need his perfect righteousness to be put in place of our imperfect righteousness. His thy will be done in place of my will be done. Once we have done that, then we should pray with, with Christ the way he taught us. You remember that in teaching the disciples to pray, he taught them to say, your kingdom come to God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that day when God's will will be the only will that's done. When we will be like the angels, the angels who were unfallen, who yet in heaven live to serve him, are his messengers. Each and every day they do his will, never failingly. And I pray for that day when I too will never do my own will again when it is not the will of the Lord. I pray for that day when my will and God's will are in perfect syncopation, not because I have managed to get God to come over to my side, but that my sinfulness and my tendency to do what I want will be forever removed. And therefore, I'll always do what's right. I'll always do what's in keeping with his will. Now, is that your confession? This day, have you already kissed the sun? Have you already come to him? Are you willing to say when you wake up in the morning, I am not my own. I'm bought at a price. I'm his servant. Therefore, I will do his will. And I pray you would. I pray that you would be a man or a woman or a child who does the will of God unceasingly. But that can only happen if we've already bowed before him. So let's go into the presence of Christ. God, our Father. Lord, so often when it comes to making a decision whether to do our will or your will, we come up with thousands of reasons why our will must be done. There's pragmatism, there's desire, there's just plain old idolatry or stubborn-mindedness. But I pray, Lord, that you would take those things away. We look forward to the day when our wills will be turned to yours perfectly. And we know, Lord, that if we don't bow before you here on earth, if we don't kiss the Son, if we don't close with Him by faith, if we don't accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we will never be turned in His direction. Our will will always be bent against Him and we'll spend eternity in hell saying, my will be done, and knowing that our will has damned us to hell. I pray, Lord, that that would not be the case, though. I pray that those listening to me will be desirous of living lives in sweet complicity with your will, we don't, O oh Lord, know what that looks like here on earth. We've never seen it perfectly, but we look forward to that day when every nation, every tribe, every tongue will bow before the Lamb and where His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a glorious day that will be. We pray that it would come quickly 
And so we say with John, come Lord Jesus. We pray these things.